It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Good evening from Coolidge, Arizona. It's uh, called the uh, Low Desert or the Valley Desert, and it's windy and dusty, uh, which is a little a little unusual normally. But uh, we're enjoying good weather here in most part. It's the 19th of April, 2018. And we are continuing in our study of Daniel, or a study in Daniel, actually, is the way I say it normally, episode number 15. Last time that we were broadcasting, we finished chapter 6 of Daniel, nearly. Um, I want to pick up with the 28th verse of this chapter, chapter 6, before we get uh, engrossed in uh, beginning chapter 7, which is going to be uh, a long a long study. But in chapter 6, in the 28th verse, and let me refresh your memory to what it says. And it says, And Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius, or Darius, however you want to say it, and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Now, that sounds pretty straightforward, but you'd be surprised at what sort of controversy there is out there about this this idea of uh, Darius or Darius, king uh, that Daniel is dealing with. Um, but I'm going to read some Old Testament scriptures to, to fix in our mind once again firmly this idea of the change of events, uh, Cyrus, of course, being mentioned. And um, I want to start with Ezra, and we can read it from the Septuagint uh, as it's written. Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Okay, that's that's fine. And in Ezra we read, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of Jehovah by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, Jehovah stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, halt Jehovah, the God of heaven, given me, and he hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judea. And I'll stop there. It goes on with his comments. But I'm going to move right, right into Second Chronicles, 
36. And both of these accounts were probably written by Ezra. Uh, but Second Chronicles, of course, is a historical account of the uh, of the Israelites. That's 36. Yeah, 36, verse 22 and 23. And we'll leave it there because I'm going to go back to the uh, two verses before it. Verses 22 and 23. And we're going to kind of repeat what we said, but I, I want to show you the, how it parallels. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of Jehovah by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, Jehovah stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth Halt Jehovah, hail Jehovah. The God of heaven given me, and he hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judea, in, in Judah. Uh, whosoever there is among you of all his people, Jehovah his God will be with him, and let him go up. Okay, now that's quite a proclamation. Let's go back to verses 20 and 21 now in the same chapter. And see, this is what this is part of the history that just before this. And in verse 20 in Second Chronicles 36, And them that had escaped from the sword carried he away to Babylon, that is Nebuchadnezzar, and they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of Jehovah by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbath. For as long as it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill threescore and ten years. Now I read these verses because I want you to understand that all of this comes together and culminates at the end of that 70 years. There's nowhere to go. These... Uh, uh, Cyrus and, and the fall of Babylon and the end of the 70 years of uh, captivity for the Jews, all these things come together at the same time. Uh, and there isn't too many historians that would debate that at all. But let, let's, now let's go to Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45, verses 1 through 6. We've read this before, but I want to read it again because many, many years before these other passages were written, Isaiah was prophesying these things. And, and this is God repeating over and over again that he has named this person. And, and it, it's really important. Thus says Jehovah to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of the kings to open the doors before him, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make the rough places smooth. I will break in pieces the doors of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that thou mayest know 
that it is I, Jehovah, who called thee by thy name, even the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my chosen, I have called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. I am Jehovah, and there is none else beside me. There is no God. I will gird thee, though thou hast not known me, that they that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am Jehovah, and there is none else. Then in verse 13 of that same chapter. I have raised him up in righteousness, and I will make straight all his ways. He shall build my city, and he shall let my exiles go free. Not for a price nor reward, saith Jehovah of hosts. Now this this is God speaking to Cyrus many, many years before he's even born. And what I wonder is, do you suppose any of the Jews shared this passage with Cyrus of Persia. I got a feeling they did. We don't find it in Scripture. We can't say that it's there. But um, his actions seem uh, very directed. Uh, I think he was aware of this. I think he understood. Uh, And I like the idea in, in the first passage in Isaiah about the fact that there's other kings under Cyrus that were doing this and doing that. It gives the whole idea of of Darius, because remember, Darius was a general. Um, so this, this really makes a lot of sense to me. Of course, this is providential in the way that God handles things, but... All through this, there's no way for for, Dar- for uh, Cyrus to not be speaking of the God of the Hebrews because all of these things have come to pass as, as was prophesied, and I think he was aware of it. I, I can't tell you that the scripture tell, tells us that. But nonetheless, when all of these kept things have come together here at the end of chapter 6. We find that um, the time frame of Ezra, uh, when we're talking about the the decree from Cyrus, is about 538 B.C. And that's a pretty fixed number there. Um, Most historians, this is a good number because we can trace this number back to the beginning of the exile and, and all the way back to the taking of the, the uh, ten tribes to the north. We have some pretty firm dates all the way back to Moses leaving Egypt. Um, and all these things fit quite well. And also remember that the end of the 70 years that was prophesied in Jeremiah that it seems many people were very aware of, including Daniel, Uh, All of these things were coming together at one time. So we have a timeline that that we can have some real confidence in. But as as we go around, in Daniel, we find that we move from one period to another. 
Uh, we are not always moving forward. Sometimes we're moving backwards. Uh, we're going to move backwards when we get to chapter 7, 16 years. Now, there are some teachers of the Bible that I have read and heard even in an attempt to get along with what would normally be called liberal uh, theologians or doubters of the text in the scripture. And some are even saying that the name uh, Darius or Darius is a title and not a name. Thus, uh, Darius is really Cyrus. They just, they just cannot leave that alone. Uh, such as like Nero was Caesar. Uh, I mean, that's an illustration, but here's the problem with it. Josephus, who is a historian of 2,000 years ago, and just as credible as, as any of the others that would uh, be doubting these things, he calls uh, Darius and Cyrus kinsmen. Uh, that kind of gives you the idea that there's two people, pretty pretty clearly. Uh, Josephus was certain of it. Um, and, of course, the Septuagint itself in the Old Testament, in, in the Hebrew, of course, has, has the, the phrase, the phraseology that we find in Daniel 6, 28. You remember what that said. And Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So I think we really need to put to rest the idea of uh, Darius not being a real uh, individual, that it was a title for Cyrus. Uh, they just, um, that's why I mentioned the passage in Isaiah about Cyrus having kings under him that are breaking down walls and, and, and fighting battles. This is exactly what was happening uh, in, that, in that time frame. So I really do think the skeptics really need to find a new hobby horse uh, in, in this whole concept of uh, doubting Daniel. And there's lots of reasons for them to not really want Daniel to be taken uh, as it's written. Of course, there's lots of figurative and... Uh, language in Daniel and prophetic language that we'll be coming into now in the last uh, half of the book. But nonetheless, the reasoning, I think, is pretty clear. Uh, they're not real pleased with what Daniel has to say. It's very, very accurate historically, and it doesn't really fit with the normal concept in Christendom today or for the last few hundred years, at least. So, I believe I'll stick with the Word of God um, and the way that it's written, and unless we can find something that would um, change that, it would have to be something very... It would take more than Josephus or any other historian to change my mind about what the Bible says. Now, uh, I just wanted to establish that because we need to be understanding um, that these people that are named are actual individuals and they had, uh, they had dealings with Daniel. We've just spent uh, a couple of weeks on Darius and, and Daniel and the 
issue they had between them. Um, and this, he was a real king. He was a real general. He was a real ruler. And it's silly to think he wasn't. And Cyrus was in another, another part of the empire at this time. It, it took more than one man to cover uh, the empires as vast as this. Now, there's one more point before we move into Chapter 7 that I'd like to explore, something I didn't have ch- time to mention last week. Um, but to complete my thoughts on the situation that we found King Darius in. Uh, He found himself in a real situation concerning being bound by the very laws that he had signed into law, uh, even though it was done in a deceptive way, a treasonous way in in, in some thinking. But nonetheless, the law had been been, uh, written, it had been signed, the decree was established, and the king was bound to it. But I want you to consider a parallel tonight uh, between God and laws and, and King Darius and laws. And I think it's a good point of, of comparison. And, and it kind of uh, makes it a little more clear about uh, the the import of, of laws. Even the law of a king that's a, that's a man, and then compare that to a law of the law that God has established. And I, I think we, we see a parallel here, and there's a good reason for it. So King Darius made, and he signed a law that caused Daniel, his friend and trusted servant, a man that he held in very high esteem, to be cast into the lion's den. And the king had no recourse but to put him in that lion's den. Now he was he was praying that that the God of Daniel would save him, but nonetheless he put him in the lion's den. So even men's laws must be obeyed, as we know. The scripture tells us that. That's a real that's a real issue, and the king obeyed it, and he did not um, break the law, for it would have brought shame to him and shame to the entire government. Now, what did God say concerning rebellion towards His word? Some would call it sin, but it's actually rebellion towards his commands. What has he said? Well, let's go to, we've just got a few passages here. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 19. And I'll read through 23. So I'm starting here at 19 to give us a little background. Now we know that what things Soever the law saith, it speaketh to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may be brought under the judgment of God. Because by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For through the law cometh the knowledge of sin. But now, 
Apart from the law, a righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ unto all them that believe. For there is no distinction. In verse 23 it says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now we'll stop there. We'll come back to that that spot for the next two verses. But now I now I want to take you to Hebrews chapter nine. See, we're finding this law is the law of God, and the idea of sin. And God had to deal with these things. Uh, he established these things, chapter nine, verse eighteen in Hebrews, and we'll read till twenty. 22. Wherefore, even the first covenant hath not been dedicated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses unto all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and huspice and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded to you word. Moreover, the tabernacle and all of the vessels of the ministry he sprinkled in like manner with blood. Verse 22. And according to the law, it may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. And apart from shedding of blood, there is no remission. You see, there's no remission of what? There's no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. Now, who made that law? Was that the Jews that established that law amongst themselves? Or was was it God's law? You see, God made a law such as this, that apart from the shedding of blood, there is no remission. So, in fact, God is bound by this, isn't he? As, as King Darius was. But let's go back to Romans, chapter 3, verses 24 and through 26. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be appropriation through faith in his blood to show his righteousness because of the passing over of the sins done aforetime in the forbearance of God. For the showing, I say, of his righteousness at this present season, that he might himself be just, and the justifier of him that hath faith in Jesus. So you see, God made Jesus the remedy for sin, but he didn't abolish the law that he established. What he did was he he offered the remedy that that was called for, and that was blood. And remember, that blood, it was only innocent blood, pure and sinless blood. Only only that was was, uh, able to remit sin. Only that was offered uh, in the days of the Jews in in way of a sin offering, uh, the spotless, uh, perfect animal, innocent in all ways and perfect in all ways. And that was the blood that was required. 
And then for the sins of men, once for all, we found that he sent his, his son to be that sacrifice. Now, these are God's requirements. God the Father, he had declared the law concerning sin. He could not break or bend his law concerning sin. So the blood of Jesus of Nazareth, his son, who was sinless and holy, was shed to forgive sins once for all. And as we read in John 3.16, for God has so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son. And that was the reason he sent Jesus, um, to be that sacrifice. Now, you see, God did not break his law. He, did, he didn't bend it, modify it. Uh, he didn't write uh, a few um, amendments to it to weaken it. What he did was he fulfilled it. He fulfilled the requirement for sin with blood. And that's a good example, I think, to us um, of the very situation that Darius was in because the king felt the laws of, of his empire were, were, were the laws that should, should not be defiled, even by him. So now, incidentally, and I'll add this, uh, as David says, there's no charge for this but I need to add it anyway because this is something I've been running into. So incidentally, this is why the idea of Jesus and his blood, this is why the, the, the false preaching of Jesus being God on earth is an impossibility. It had to be a man. God is spirit. He does not bleed. Thus, Jesus of Nazareth could not have been God on earth. He was Jesus of Nazareth, the sinless man, the son of Mary, and in spirit, of course, the son of God that came to do his father's will. Only his blood, the blood of Jesus of Nazareth, could redeem us because it was sinless. And I, I hope you see here uh, the parallel and the import of it. Um, because when we thought of, when we talked quite a little bit last week about the the uh, predicament that King Darius was in, uh, we we might have thought that he was weak or silly or or something of that sort. But we have to understand that these laws and the reason they had laws and the reason they had the idea that once a law was made, it could not be changed uh, was an important thing. And God himself holds himself to exactly the same requirements. Once he has said something, he will do as he says. He will hold everyone to account exactly as he says. Pardon will be supplied exactly as he says. And it's all in the scriptures for us. You know, it's not a riddle. It's not a secret. We don't have to climb a mountain on our knees to find out the answer. He's made it very available for us to do these things. So that, I think, that is what I wanted to finish with, with this idea of King Darius, because um, I was feeling bad for him. 
I, I really, uh, I did not like the fact that he was being deceived. I know that, uh, I know that it was his ego and 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 some other weaknesses probably that allowed him to be uh, railroaded into what happened. But nonetheless, um, the import of the seriousness of a law is something that we need to understand and and have respect for, because God does. God has great respect for what he considers the law or what has been said. Well, um, that, I believe, wraps up Chapter 6, at least in my estimation, and brings us to uh, the introduction, I guess, in Chapter 7, and there, there's a lot to be considered in this chapter. Uh, we're going to spend some time in it. I do have a little uh, a little chart that uh, we're going to email out that you'll have for next uh, the next session. It's simply a sheet that's got some uh, figures on it and some scriptures and then room for notes that you might find helpful. But from Chapter 7 on in, in the book of Daniel... To the completion of the, of the book is considered by most folks the second part or the second half of the book, and and so it is, I believe. It was even, uh, according to many, and I think it's true, probably written in Hebrew, because really the things that follow um, in the the prophetic things here. Um, since the empire of the Babylonians um, was completed at the end of chapter 6, even though we go back in 7, these are things for the Hebrew people, uh, for them to know what will be coming in their future. Now, we also have, from now on, quite a few uh, words that are symbolic, uh, words and images that we're going to find um, in the chapters to come. But from this point on, we need to be very aware of all of the the poetic style of writing and the, and the pro, uh, prophetic things that we're going to be reading, the visions and the images and, that, and those things that uh, Daniel... Uh, saw and heard. And also there will, there are those speaking to Daniel from the spiritual realm concerning these things, also using this sort of phraseology. So the time frame in, in the vision here that Daniel is going to have at the very beginning of chapter 7 uh, is, uh, is, is back well, actually, let me back up on that. The time frame in this, in his visions, in all of the visions that he will have from now on in this writing, from chapter 7 through chapter 12, is first, first point, from the very taking away of the Jews to Babylon, 611 B.C., that, that's where these visions start, and uh, of the... Uh, things that we have already heard and we're going to hear again. And it's going to go to the completion of the Jewish age, all the way to the end. The old covenant 
Israel. It'll take us all the way to A.D. 70 to 73. That's the time frame here of these, of these visions. Now, of course, I've departed now from what now many would consider uh, Daniel to be, uh, most of it from here on to be in the future, uh, the distant future of mankind. But I disagree with that very, very much because first off, this, um, this writing is to the Hebrews. That's who it's to. It's concerning them. And there isn't anything in here, as some people are always saying, there isn't anything in here about America or England or some, something of that sort, even though they've, they've looked and tried to find it and even worked it in somehow. But remember, this is a, pro, a, a process uh, through these final chapters. Those speaking to Daniel are telling him what the vision means or how long this is or the time frame. And the, the phrase that keeps, being, keeps popping up is, uh, from those speaking to Daniel, is your people. Your people. Remember that. You're going to find this. And who is the your people that is that Daniel understood? Well, wouldn't it be uh, people. Huh? His, people. his people from Abraham, right? They, they, they went back to Abraham. Uh, and, and the sons of Jacob, the house of Jacob, the Jewish people, um, the tribes, uh, the 12 tribes, and, but the Jewish people in general. That's who's being spoken of here. And uh, Daniel was very aware of it. He understood that. But I'm wondering uh, how many folks that study Daniel or the commentators, that some of them that I've read, they seem to not give that any credence. But I believe that it's the, it's the key to understanding uh, the things that are, are being spoken about. There again, there may be some uh, folks that might have a different idea concerning that, but I think it's really clear. Um, and uh, I think today, in 2018, I think we have more people uh, that are teaching the Bible and uh, doing these things are more aware of this, and, and there's a, quite a movement uh, to understand prophecy and the idea of being prophecy being fulfilled and the fulfilling of the age of the Jews, this is something that's real. This isn't something that's just a theory. When we read the Bible, when we study the Bible, we find that it's, it's a real situation. It's the reality. It, it's a literal situation that, that is, um, uh, is really hard to argue against. And through these first six chapters of Daniel, where we've had nothing but history and cold, hard history, it's been yeah. really reassuring of that. Yeah. Yeah, we, we've been looking at history. It's very, very interesting. Uh, but it's, it's boxed in with this, with this whole concept of the time frame or how it applies or how it is, is applied to the Jewish people. Uh, that's what it's all about, really. 
Yeah, we find out a lot about uh, Babylonian uh, people and the uh, the Persians and the Medes, Alexander the Great, the Romans. We find out a lot about them, but it's all in application to how it works together with, with God's people, the covenant people of God, the Jews. That's what's important. And remember, there's four empires that we've been talking about since we began this this text, but there's that fifth that fifth one that's cut out of the, the mountain without hands, and that's going to be coming up again, you see, because that's just as real as all the accurate history that we have. And that last, that last empire that is the greatest of all, that is the one without end, that one is established in the time of the fourth, uh, the, uh, the, the fourth empire, which is the Roman Empire, it's, it's, we have it boxed in in a time period with dates and, and many other things of the historical nature that, that make it very clear that this is when it really did happen. And from there on, we can see it takes us to the end of the Jewish realm, and, uh, and we go on from there. So Daniel chapter 7 the first verse, I'd like to read it for you. Um, from the Septuagint, it says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. And he wrote his dream. I just like how they're so specific with everything that they say there. But we're now we're we're back to the first year of Belshazzar, and where is that? Uh, yeah, about 16 years. We're going back 16 years. Uh, the first year of Belshazzar was uh, 555, maybe 554 BC, some 16 years earlier than there than where we began, chapter six. And chapter 6 takes period, a very short time period uh, within that chapter. So we're going now back, um, back before the Persians and the Medes had, conquer, had conquered the Babylonians. That's where we're at now with Daniel having this, as it's called, a night vision in some of our English texts. Um, and, and, and this is important, he wrote it down. He wrote down what the vision was. Now, have you ever woke up or had a dream about something you solved a, a really nice problem and <laughs> something that's been bothering you or or something that you wanted to say and then you woke up and and you look around and you write, try to write these things down? Uh, I've done it a few times, but sometimes I'm just too tired to write it down. But I think I'm going to remember it, but, you know, I don't remember it. I don't remember it the way I think I should. But he wrote these things down. Uh, and I think that's important uh, for us to know. Uh, now remember, chapter 7, we're going to be looking at kind of the same sort of um, prophetic issue as chapter 2. 
Now Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, remember, of the of the uh, the statue, the the, the man, uh, the gold head and the silver breast and the brass for the waist and and the and the legs of iron and clay and you know. Um, but now Daniel's going to have a vision that is also going to represent these things in in a, in a different um, different type of of image. So in in verse uh, two of chapter seven, it says, "I Daniel beheld, and lo, the four winds of heaven blew violently." upon the great sea. I'm going to stop right there because there's a lot right there. I, Daniel, beheld. In other words, he he saw this clearly, didn't he? Uh, and he was beholding it, which is a stronger word than just see or look. Um, and lo, the four winds of heaven blew violently upon the great sea. Uh, can we look at Jeremiah 49:36? We have another illustration here of of the four winds. There's others. 49, Jeremiah 49, verse 36. There's other passages that talk about these winds, but Neil. Yes. There, there's a thought here that may be speculative. Yeah. Um, when it says visions of his head in verse 1, mm-hmm. that means that it is, taking pl- <clears throat> it is taking place within his head. Mm-hmm. And there is some mechanism that he has that is observing what's going on in his head. Now we find out from the New Testament that is is the spirit, his spirit, but in our case, anyone's spirit, is what gives you access to evaluate your own thinking. So even though that's not here, when it says it's taking place within his head, yeah. he's having, it means that he's observing it from some other mechanism, and that other mechanism is a part of how we all evaluate our thinking, and that's the spirit. That's what gives us access into the mind. Yeah. To evaluate. You ever think about, what am I thinking? We always ask them, what are you thinking? What are you thinking, right? Well, in other words, for anybody to answer that question, why they they have to have a spirit because it's the spirit that gives us access to the mind. Mm -hmm. I don't know that that's, all that's involved there, but I just thought it was an intriguing thing that uh, <clears throat> Daniel's spirit, his nature, which in the last verse of chapter 6, it says he prospered. That is, he was making gains in all of his life. Yeah. And part of it is he had an excellent spirit mm-hmm. and making gains in his own spirit capacity. That's right. In the beginning of chapter 6, it says that Daniel had an excellent spirit. said he had an excellent spirit. Even his captor said he had an excellent spirit. 
spirit. Even that's right. And so he had the capability of reading the ideas of his thinking properly mm-hmm. and, and putting them down on writing because they mean nothing to anybody until they're in writing. That's true. Anybody can say anything. That's why I said there's a lot to be said just in those few words. Yeah. yeah. And I, you say it's speculative, but I, I really think because of the way it's said there, there, there is something to it. And it's uh, not just, he wasn't just writing his, his, in his dream journal. This is the Logos that he's writing about. Yeah. Now, he, I'm not he happened to be there, laying down, he happened to be resting, but this was going on in his head, like you said. These things were becoming clear to him. And he wrote it, and it says in the, um, in the Greek the, uh, that he, he wrote it into, into the word, put it, putting it into words. That's the, I know you don't know the Greek, you know, what those yeah. words mean. I, mm-hmm. <clears throat> the last few words there. That, that I know is logos. What? That was the last word there is, is logos. Yeah, then you got the preposition into. Mm-hmm. So he was putting his thoughts into words, which means that it had to come from his mind through the spirit, evaluated it, and then he put it down in words. And that's the way that the apostles did. They could access the thinking of God through their spirit, evaluate it, and then put it into writing so that you and I can benefit from it. Same principle, mm-hmm. right there. And same spirit, because First Peter talks about the spirit of the prophets was Christ. That's right. So we have we have a complete um, thinking there. Thank you. Uh, there's just so much in, in everything that's there. Um, Did we get to your verse? No, no. We're in verse two. I, Daniel, beheld, and lo, the four winds of, of heaven blew violently upon the great sea. And then we went to Jeremiah, or was it? 49.36. Yeah. Jeremiah 49.36 says this. And upon Elam will I bring the four winds from the four quarters of heaven and will scatter them towards all those winds and there shall be no nation whither the outcasts of Elam shall not come. By the way, uh, Elam is the ancient word for Persia. But it talks about the four winds from the four quarters of heaven. Um, so this is how it's described um, in a way, if you, if you want to visualize it that way. Uh, but these winds are, um, they're, they are winds, but they, they're uh, symbolic of, of things happening. And I'd like to, uh, uh, as I said before, there's going to be so many words in here that we're going to have to look at in a symbolic or a figurative way. First off, um, the word sea. The word sea is symbolic of many people. 
some people uh, would say this would be symbolic of the Gentile world, the, the sea of Gentiles. Um, and that's probably true because there were more of them, of course, than anyone else. But that word sea is a symbolic word and it has a meaning of many people. And then the violent wind upon the water, I believe, is a sign of, uh, according to what has been written about these, these words, agitation of people or empires. In other words, the stirring of. And don't you think that, that that's kind of what Daniel is seeing here? Uh, a lot of commotion. A lot of commotion. Violent. Uh, blew violently upon the sea. And they realized what's coming up. These commotions are among the Gentile powers in their contest for world supremacy. Yeah. So the beasts are going to be representing that that um, desire for and that struggle for power amongst all these Gentile powers for who's going to be supreme. Exactly. Now, Nebuchadnezzar did not get this aspect of it in his vision. No. He saw the he saw the the, the strength and the glory of the of men's kingdom. But here, Daniel is seen is seeing it from a different viewpoint, um, where this is turmoil amongst men. Uh, amongst the the, the uh, Gentile world, especially, and um, if you think about these kingdoms, you you would have to you would have to say that they were always in turmoil, basically, and violent, moving things, changing daily. <laughs> I always thought that statue was a little top heavy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so did Nebuchadnezzar. He thought it was pretty top heavy too. Yeah, he was the heavyweight. Uh, but we're talking about the character of the man. So, yeah, so uh, I think this is a good way to start this, looking at it in a way that we have to see. We can't just look at these things and read them as we would uh, a book or a novel because these words have, have a meaning. And certainly what Daniel has seen, now we're going to get an interpretation of this, but knowing the ideas or the basics of, of these prophetic words is something that we're going to need not only in Daniel, but we need it very badly in, in the uh, prophetic writings all the way through the Bible and especially in Revelation. So that brings us up to the third verse, but we're rather out of time. I will read the verse. But we'll start here again next week uh, because now we're really getting into it um, as far as the third verse as, as it begins. And it simply says this in the Septuagint, Septuagint. And there came up four great beasts out of the sea differing from one another. Now let's just think about that out of the sea, out of the nations of men, the turmoil of the winds, four empires from the Gentile nations, 
And all of these empires were vying for power to overtake the next. But they all had a great effect upon the covenant people of God, the Jews. And that's what's really important. That's what Daniel, uh, that's what Daniel is concerned about in all these things that he sees. If he's troubled about a vision, it's because he sees it being troubling for his people. All right? Uh, plus, he may not understand it either, uh, but it's explained. So consider these things until the next time we meet. Um, and remember that chapter 7 and chapter 2 are very closely related as far as these visions go, but the images are different. Uh, and chapter 7 is going to expand upon this thinking uh, much more than we got in chapter 2. So it's going to be an exciting trip, an exciting road trip. Maybe you haven't been there before, but we invite you to return. And let us close in prayer. We thank you, Father, for the evening that we have been granted, the time and the resource to bring this message uh, to those that are listening that we can share the great truths of your word, the great depth of meaning of your word, that we all may have a good grip on the things that you would have us know so that we may be more useful to you as the days continue. And we pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.